Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, uh, the churches in Rome, that is, while he was living in Corinth. Now, in spite of being a Roman citizen himself, Paul had never actually been to the city of Rome. Nonetheless, the gospel had spread there of its own accord, and it was home to a number of Christ followers at this time, comprised of both converted pagans as well as Jews who believed that Jesus was truly the Messiah. Now, these Christians from different backgrounds didn't get along especially well. The Gentile converts wanted equal status in the community, while the Christ-following Jews believed themselves superior, what with Jesus having been Jewish himself. The infighting between Christian Gentiles, Christ-following Jews, and more Orthodox Jewish groups who didn't even believe in Jesus had gotten so bad at one point that all of the Jews and Christians were thrown out of the city and forbidden to return. And while the ban was lifted just a few years later, the venom between them all persisted. Now this was exacerbated, I suspect, by the emperor, Nero, who literally fanned the flames of hatred. I say literally because some believe that he actually started the great fire of Rome in the year 64. As history well remembers, he played his fiddle while the city burned. And when the ashes had settled, he blamed the Christians for starting the fire launching an era of terrible persecution. Now the letter, or this piece from the letter that we're about to hear, predates the fire by a few years, but it was composed nonetheless in a time of unrest. And here Paul encourages the churches in Rome to love their enemies within their walls and without, an act that is naturally Easier said than done. A reading from Romans 12, 14 to 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not to be claimed to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. And may they be in keeping always with the teachings of our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.
I hate you. I hate you, he screamed at the top of his lungs. His little brother, who'd incurred his wrath when he'd snatched a Lego figure from his hands, was not especially troubled by the sentiment. Small children aren't always especially good at articulating their feelings, and they're prone to hyperbole, often exaggerating their experience in the strongest possible words. When something goes wrong, uh, however trivial, my older son, Ethan, will often remark that it is the worst day of his life. And Levi, who just turned three, will sometimes abandon language altogether and howl like a forlorn animal. In the case of this little spat, an archetypal episode in that it resembles a hundred others like it, uh, Levi was unfazed. It wasn't until the name-calling started that he began to take offense. You're banned from my room forever, Ethan raged, his cheeks growing red with anger. You're so stupid. I'm not stupid, Levi replied defiantly. I'm Levi Carey. Perhaps he benefits from his limited vocabulary in times like these because he doesn't have the words to properly insult his older brother. But the hatred born of anger, or some immature facsimile of it, begins to blossom at a very young age. It's as natural as breathing, some primordial instinct that kept our most ancient ancestral tribes at war. As of late, I've been rereading George Orwell's 1984, that dystopian tale of fascism run amok. It depicts a London ruled by Big Brother, the anonymous face that watches everyone's every move and demands complete loyal, loyalty and obedience to the ruling party in the state. This, uh, this loyalty is guaranteed through a number of means, one of which is called the two minutes hate. A two-minute break in the middle of every workday where folks gather around a screen and hurl insults and obscenities at images of foreigners and alleged rebels and terrorists. It exploits humanity's basest instinct, ensuring unity by providing a common enemy to pour our loathing upon. And the protagonist of this story, a man named Winston, who secretly believes that Big Brother and the the party are evil, plays along for fear of standing out. But in his heart, another hatred is born. Hatred for the state, hatred for the party, hatred for Big Brother, and hatred for all of those who have broken the world with their hateful agenda. Now Winston's cause is just. His desire for freedom is just. But is his hatred just as well, even as the underdog? Is hatred ever just? I'd like to take this opportunity today to talk about civility. It's the word on everyone's lips these days. There's no civility in politics anymore, people lament statement with which I'm inclined to agree. Folks in the highest echelons of power have resorted to name-calling like children. Of course, the president is especially fond of this. 
tactic, but Democrats like Joe Biden, who threatened to beat him up after school, also fall into the same trap. The bar for civil discourse has been set so low that politicians may as well be hurling handfuls of feces at one another. Others still who are concerned about human rights and the divisive rhetoric coming out of the White House boldly declare that the time for civility is over. And their favorite tactic as of late is to harass employees of the Trump administration in public, usually in restaurants while they're trying to eat. That's the thing these days. The Homeland Security chief was recently booed out of a Mexican restaurant and as I think we all know, White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders was asked to leave another establishment because of her political loyalties. Now the lightning rod for all of this, as we know if we've been watching the news, uh, has been the separation of children and their families at the Mexican border. It's a policy that I personally find to be indefensible and abhorrent. And I confess that my initial gut reaction to hearing about the architects and the defenders of this protocol being chased out of restaurants is a loud hip hip hooray. But our gut reactions are not always the right reactions. That's where hatred lives, in the gut, in the natural instinct. And Jesus and Paul would tell us, I think, that it has no place in the human heart. Now, the Apostle Paul is the very picture of civility in a politically charged environment. Like Jesus, he lived during the Roman occupation of Palestine. Unlike Jesus, he was a Roman citizen, and he lived as political tensions were rising to a fever pitch. Now, Paul was especially active in the middle of the first century under the reign of Nero, as I said earlier, who by all accounts was a, a vile tyrant who hated Christians and one of the worst emperors Rome had ever seen. And it wasn't just Nero that didn't like the Christians. A lot of Jews disliked them too. And by association, they disliked Paul as well. Paul was frequently beaten, imprisoned, insulted and harassed by Jewish and Roman authorities alike. Regardless, Paul was always polite and respectful without compromising the core of his message. And this text from Romans offers a glimpse behind his personal ethos. Bless those who persecute you, he writes. Bless and do not curse them. Don't be haughty. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, according to Paul, fighting fire with fire is never the answer. It's tempting. It's very tempting. And it might be effective in achieving one's short-term goals. But at what cost? As Jesus said so eloquently in the book of Matthew, what profit is it to a man if he gain the world but loses his own soul? And he illustrated it more beautifully still on the cross, where instead of fighting back, he subverted hatred with love and transformed the Roman Empire from within 
when the Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity some 300 years later. Now that's a long time. It took a long time for that change to happen, but if Jesus had led an armed revolt instead, or even if he had hurled insults at his accusers, if he'd sunk into their level, I dare say he would have been crushed beneath the wheels of history and never heard of again. It was his refusal to participate in that system of hatred and violence that made his message so compelling, that kept it alive for so long, and that it ultimately changed the course of history. Christ's legacy lived on because love is actually the most effective catalyst for change. Love is the most effective tool for the job. People like Jesus, Paul, Martin Luther King Jr., Gandhi, Nelson Mandela have proven it time and again. In the case of Christianity, Jesus began the work, Paul took it up and expanded it, and countless others throughout history have built upon it. There's a remarkable story from uh, second century Greece about a man named Euripides. It's said that one day he brought a pair of pants to the local tailor. Euripides, the tailor asked. Yes, he replied. Eumenides? Euripides? Eumenides? Sorry. I don't know why you guys let me get up here all the time. It's a bad joke, okay? But, okay, so there really was a guy named Aristides, okay? <laughs> Forget Eumenides and Euripides. There was a guy from Athens named Aristides, a man who the Roman Emperor Hadrian in the second century sent to spy on a local Christian sect to learn more about what they were really up to, okay? And what he found there inspired him. The Christians are a good people, Aristides writes, who persevere in their persecution and even show compassion toward their accusers, praying to God that they may repent of the errors they have committed out of ignorance. And in the end, the imperial spy, Aristides, converted to Christianity himself. It wasn't hatred for a common enemy, but rather a bold proclamation of compassion and kindness that inspired his baptism. Now, civility and love are not the same thing. You have to acknowledge that. You can despise someone in your heart and still be polite to them. And yes, it's love, not mere politeness that changes the world. But I still believe civility is important because it upholds a certain level of decency uh, and dignity, without which our basis instincts are encouraged. Without that uh, civility, hatred flourishes more freely. It's given license to breed. Civility can help to keep it in check. And as we all know, no one excels at civility more than the British. Sure, they have a great deal of etiquette and protocol that can seem overwhelming at times, but at the end of the day, you've got to admire their sheer determination to be polite. That's a stereotype, I know, and it's not always true, but I'll tell you one thing that I've seen firsthand. I, uh, I had the opportunity to visit uh, London for a day several years ago, and the first thing I noticed is that they have the most courteous and respectful signs that I have ever seen. 
They were all over town. The words please and thank you were everywhere. Please do not park here. Thank you. Thank you for not smoking. Please refrain from eating the urinal cakes. Thank you. A lot of these signs actually have the words polite notice emblazoned across the top, and others feel the need to justify themselves, resulting in posts that are extraordinarily lengthy by American standards. So, for instance, a sign that might say, uh, first come, first served in America, uh, compare, it, compare it to this, one sign spotted in a local pub that reads, this is a polite notice for our customers. We do not have a queuing system in place in our pub. If you as customers decide to stand behind one another, that is your decision to make. Please know that if a customer comes to the bar, he or she will be served. To reiterate, we do not ask customers to queue. Thank you. Very long signs. Now, he's never been to England, but my son Ethan likes to post signs like this all over the house. Uh, they're very polite. My favorite was a sign that he put on his mother's office door. Now, I don't remember what the actual sign said, but, but he put another sign beneath the first sign uh, that read, please do not take down the signs. <laughs> Thank you. And it included a, a stick figure image of his mother removing a sign from the door with a red circle and a line drawn through it. But I digress. The most famous of all British signs is, of course, one that was designed in 1939, just at the dawn of World War II, politically tumultuous time, if there ever was one. The government on the brink of war anticipated fire bombings and poison gas attacks in major cities within the next few months. And with this in mind, they issued the words that have recently been enjoying a renaissance. Keep calm and carry on. I believe those are words to live by. They don't tell us to sit still in a crisis or to do nothing in the face of evil and hatred. They tell us to keep calm, to maintain our composure, our dignity, while we're fighting the good fight, while we're carrying on. To refuse to give in to hatred, however hateful the enemy may be. But Pastor Seth, you may protest, civility didn't win the war. Maybe not. But it was hatred and a lack of civility that started it. Take care, friends, not to equate civility with silence. We can, we must, call out injustice and evil. But we can do it without name-calling, or mudslinging, or violence, or hatred. And if we don't, then we aren't much better than whoever we deem to be our enemies. Again, if your enemies are hungry, feed them, Paul writes. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. You know, I'll tell you what I would have liked to see happen in the Red Hen restaurant where Sarah Huckabee Sanders was asked to leave. I'd have liked to see the owner join her at her table 
for a civil, honest conversation where she could share her concerns face to face over a meal. I would have liked to see her pick up the check as an act of goodwill. Maybe Sanders would have left of her own accord. Maybe that's a conversation she did not want to have. Maybe I'm being idealistic. Or maybe, just maybe, the owner of that restaurant could have planted a seed of doubt in Sanders' heart about the indefensible policies she so stridently defends. And if your gut reaction to that notion is that Sarah Huckabee Sanders has no heart, then you've already let hatred creep into your own. I can still vividly remember the first time I ever told someone that I hated them. I was young, too young, for that kind of venom. Maybe five or six years old. Hate was a word spoken with the carelessness of youth that I have seldom repeated since. Not to anyone's face, at least. It was directed at my grandfather, an Italian immigrant, retired mechanic and professional boxer who could take an insult as well as he could dish it out. The man was rumored to be invincible, having once survived a head-on collision with a tractor trailer. He was stubborn as a mule, but kind. And he had a good sense of humor, which is why he found it very amusing uh, to call me, uh, or to give me a nickname that I didn't particularly appreciate. He used to call me Giuseppe Pasquale whenever I visited his house. I later learned that was the name of a 20th century Italian boxer, but at the time I took it as a personal insult. That's not my name! I'd scream angrily. My name is Seth Ethan Carey! All right, all right, Giuseppe Pasquale, he'd carry on with a <laughs> mischievous grin. No need to shout, I can hear you just fine. I can remember standing barefoot on the cold linoleum floor of the guest bedroom where he lay in a hospital bed. No longer a virile young man, Grandpa was sick. Death had yet to come for him, but it would before too long. I hate you. I seethed back at him through tears and clenched teeth, and I stormed out of the room. They said he was invincible. I don't know if those words cut him or just bounced off of him like so many blows from lesser men in the boxing ring. But I can tell you this, looking back on them now, that those words cut me. Every time I think of that story, my heart aches. I hardly got to know my grandfather while he was alive, and now that memory is all I have left of him. Hatred always inflicts more damage on the one who hates, strips them of their humanity, their heart, their name. The one who stands against everything stands for nothing. I'll be honest with you guys, I'm angry at a lot of what I see in this world, in this country. I'm furious, to be honest. And I intend to do whatever I can with all of your help 
to work for justice. But I'm also going to try to keep calm. I'm going to try to keep myself so that I can still look in the mirror and recognize the face that stares back. There are those who would call me weak for saying that, naive, stupid. But to that I say, echoing my youngest son, I'm not stupid. I'm Seth Ethan Carey. Who are you? Amen.